Well, good morning, Woods Edge. So good to be with you again. Uh, my name is Denny Henderson. I'm the executive pastor of ministry. It's been good to be with you the last several weeks. I want to say hi to those who are also watching online. And uh, we have a great morning ahead as we continue this series called We on Mission or Woods Edge on Mission. And so just to clarify uh, who we are here at Woods Edge, if you're new for the first time, this is for you. If you're not new for the first time, you've been here for a long time, it's just to remind us that we exist to love Jesus, journey together, come on, and bring hope. Bring hope to those uh, around us, bring hope to the world around us, bring hope to our community. And we have a vision here at Woods Edge, is that Houston will become known, the greater Houston area will become known as a city of God. That, that what we would recognize is that God is moving, that the gospel is transforming lives in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our, in our school districts, in the city of Houston. So that's what we're praying for. That's what we're moving our energy to. And, and we on mission, or Woods says on, on mission, we, we begin to lay a foundation, a foundational understanding of what that means. And so for the first week, if you haven't been here for the last few weeks, I'll give you a 30-second recap. The first week we talked about that if we were to be a church that's truly on mission with Jesus, it would fundamentally change our perspective. It would change our perspective of God. It would change our perspective of the church. And it would change our perspective of the world around us. What we learned is that God himself is what we call the Missio Dei. It's Latin for the God of mission, the God on mission, the, the sent God, that God has propelled himself into the lives of humanity to, to reach and redeem and to reconcile a broken relationship. He ultimately did this through his son, Jesus Christ, when Jesus said, John 12, that as the Father has sent me, he said, I also send you, that we are the sent people of God. And the church is the ecclesia. And what we learned is that the church isn't just the gathering of, of God's people, but it's actually more than that. That as we study this word ecclesia, it actually means that it is our, it is our job. It's our, it's our expressed objective, if you will, to add value to our communities. Jeremiah chapter 29, seek the welfare of your city and in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And so it is our role to give to give value to the people around us, to our neighborhoods, to our communities, to give discernment, wisdom, guidance, and obviously the love of Jesus Christ and advancing of the gospel. And if we were to be on mission, it would transform the way that we see the world around us, that we would recognize that every person that we come in contact with has traces of their creator written on their soul. And they were created in the image of God. And God is desperately in love with them, and so we will be desperately in love with them as well. And then last week, we took another step, and what we begin to recognize is that maturity, when we grow in Christ, our spiritual maturity actually leads us to mission. It actually leads us to mission. That as we mature in Christ, it should always lead us to mission. Philippians chapter 2, it says, work out, your, work out your salvation with fear and trembling or with an awe to it, right? Because our spiritual walk is really important. And it is he, it's God who will will and work uh, to his good pleasure. And so it is God's, it's us cooperating with God, his work in us to grow in our spiritual walk. And we made the big statement that we have to take personal responsibility of our spiritual walk. We have to take personal responsibility of that. 
that it's not the responsibility of Pastor Jeff. It's not the responsibility of my home church group leader. It's not the responsibility of my spouse and parents. It's not your responsibility or Pastor Justin's responsibility over student ministries uh, for the spiritual walk of your kids. We have to, as Christ followers, take personal responsibility when it comes to growing in Christ. But we said that maturity will always move us to mission. And so this morning, we're going to look at a passage together, a passage that we're probably familiar with, whether you've been in the church for a long time or you're new to the church, you're probably familiar to some degree with this, with this particular story that we're going to read about with Jesus. And I hope that we can look at it in a new light, have a full understanding of what's actually taking place in this moment. So if you have a Bible, I, uh, I encourage you to open up to Luke chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. Still your, still your neighbor's Bible. Get your iPhone, do whatever you have to do. But I think it's really important that we read God's word for ourselves and don't just trust me on it. Let's trust God's word. And so in Luke chapter 10, we have a, uh, a conversation that Jesus is, is having with a lawyer or a scribe. And it's the story of the Good Samaritan. We're all pretty familiar with this story of the Good Samaritan, but this is what it says in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, put Jesus to the test. So a scribe. Now, the role of a scribe was that they were the legal scholars of the time. They were the legal scholars. They, um, were, they were scholars when it came to the first five books of the Old Testament. That they knew everything. If you had a question about the law, you would go to the scribe or you would go to this lawyer and you would ask them. They, 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 they kind of emphasize uh, being scholarly over the things of civil law and moral law. So they knew the law. So this scribe or this lawyer comes up to Jesus and it says that he poses him a question. And it says it's actually to test him. So his intentions aren't really to get an answer from Jesus. He has something else much different in mind. His idea is if I can trip Jesus up, this word test, which is translated into entrap. If I can entrap Jesus, if I can throw Jesus a question that maybe he'll mess up with, all the crowd that's listening to Jesus, it will discredit his work. It will discredit his words. It's almost as if this scribe is saying, all right, Jesus, Let's see what you can do with this particular question. Let's see how you can interact and how you will answer this. Let's see if I can make a mockery of you, this, you know, Jesus, this kind of backwoods rabbi. Let's see if I can embarrass you in front of all these people who are following you to discredit who you are. So he's trying to entrap him. And it says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's asking a behavior question. What am I supposed to do to inherit eternal life? What am I supposed to do to, to be spiritually mature? What am I supposed to do to, to have salvation? What am I supposed to do to be a part of the kingdom? That's what the scribe is asking. And Jesus said to him, and I love how Jesus does this. He does this a number of times in the Gospels where he's asked a question. Instead of giving the answer, he just answers it with another question. I can't stand people like that, by the way. Just give me the answer. Like I'm literally asking you because I don't know. Just give me the answer. So he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor 
as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And so Jesus, in this moment, he actually defines for us spiritual maturity. The, the scribe, he answered Jesus' question. What does the law say? The law says, says to love the Lord God with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your strength, with everything that you have. And to also love your neighbor as yourself. The loving God aspect comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. We call it the Shema. And every morning they would gather in the temple. God's people would gather in the temple. And they would recite the Shema. To love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind. So he's referring to the Old Testament saying, well, the Old Testament says to love God. Love God with all of me. That's the answer. To love God with all of me. A mark of spiritual maturity. To love God with all of me. Then he goes on to say, and to love your neighbor. He's referencing Leviticus 19.18 where we have the command to love our neighbor. So as a Old Testament scholar of the law, he understood it's to love God and to love your neighbor. So spiritual maturity is marked in two different ways here. It's defined in one way of to love God with all of me and to love my neighbor as me, to love my neighbor as me, to love my neighbor the way that I would want to be loved. And so he gives them, he, he comes up with the answer and Jesus says, yeah, do that and you will live. Look at his response. Verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself. Why would he need to justify himself? Why would the lawyer or the scribe who knows the law but also is expected to live by the law, why would he need to justify himself? Well, because the reality is he's probably thinking, well, I, I haven't actually loved God with all of me. There's been times I haven't always loved God the way I should have loved God. I definitely haven't loved my neighbor probably as I would like to be loved. And for all of us, I mean, if, if that's what's required... To love God with all of me. How many of you hit that mark? Not me. To love my neighbor as me. I haven't hit that one either. In fact, some of my neighbors, I, you know, they, they need to read the HOA guidelines. <laughs> I would love them then. So I've failed. You've failed. This lawyer has failed. And so to justify himself, look what he says. <laughs> to justify himself, he said to Jesus, then who is my neighbor? So he takes the what am I to do question into a no question. So we do this a lot in our own Christian walk, right? God in his word tells us to do something. We don't necessarily like what it says to do. So we want to justify ourselves by saying, if I just understood exactly what Jesus was saying here. Like, we turn it from a, this is what you do question, what am I supposed to do, to, well, what am I really supposed to know question. So, for instance, Ephesians 5, husbands, it says, love your wife as Christ loved the church. So instead of actually loving our wife the way Christ loved the church sometimes, what we do is we go into a small group and we discuss what does it look like to love the way Jesus loves, and we talk about it. We just want to know about it. My kids do this. Go clean your room. Well, okay, well, how do you want it clean? Do you, where do you want the toys? Do you want the clothes over here? Do you want the toys there? I'm confused. I don't, I don't really know what you mean by clean your room. It's like, yes, you do. Clean your room. Just do it. Obey. 
They're just, they're just like, you know, they're pushing off the inevitable of cleaning the room. And so this lawyer is asking a question. Well, then, Jesus, then who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Now, in this particular time in the ancient, in the ancient world, in ancient Middle East, uh, the scribe would have interpreted this idea of neighbor maybe differently than we would. Uh, neighbor in the, Greek, in the Greek means to be in close proximity. It's those who we're in close proximity with. In the Hebrew, it means those who we pass by. So it's who we pass by. It's those who we live in proximity with. But specifically for the scribe, he understood neighbor in maybe three different ways. Number one would be that a neighbor is someone who I like and they like me. I treat them well. They treat me well. Therefore, maybe they're considered my neighbor. That's why Jesus once said, it has been said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say, love your enemy. So a neighbor is considered someone who likes me and I like them. The second understanding of neighbor would be those who are a part of God's people. Israel inherited the promised land. God's people were given the promised land. They inherited it. They inhabited the promised land. So if you were a part of God's people and you were a part of Israel living in the promised land, then you're my neighbor. And the third way that he might have understood this word neighbor or this understanding of neighbor is that he would have understood that neighbor is, um, uh, neighbor is, is not just someone who I like. It's not just, uh, and they, they like me, not just someone who maybe is a part of God's people, the community of people, but also those who are like me. They vote like I vote. They drive the type of car I drive. You know, their, their kids are in the same thing, uh, involved in the same things that I'm involved in, uh, our kids are involved in. They, they have the same kind of biblical worldview or worldview in general. And so because we're alike, that makes me a neighbor. That's what a neighbor is. That would have been his understanding. And so this is actually a theoretical conversation that this lawyer's having. And in this theor theoretical conversation, Jesus actually gives... He actually gives a real-life example, and this is what it says. Jesus replied to him, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So Jericho is about 17 miles south of Jerusalem, and it was like the suburbs. And if you wanted to go do business, you would walk up 17 miles, you would take whatever you're taking to trade or to sell in the market. You would go into Jerusalem. You would do your business and you would offload all your product. You would come back to Jericho. You'd make your way back home to Jericho out in the suburbs and you would be flushed with cash. And so robbers and thieves would, would hang out on the side and they would look for someone vulnerable enough to rob and to nab them and take all their money. And so this man says that he's walking back from Jerusalem, going back to Jericho, probably flushed with cash, cash and he's robbed. And this is what it says. It says that they robbed him of his clothes, so he's naked. You only had one pair of clothing back then, one article of clothing. It's gone. And they beat him. And he's, buddy, he's bloodied, he's bruised, and this actually is translated that almost to death, meaning that, that, that like he's not dead yet, but if someone doesn't intervene and if someone doesn't help, he's going to surely die. And then he goes on to say, Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. 
So a priest just got finished preaching in the temple, probably about loving your neighbor. Just read the Shema with all of God's people. Right? I mean, he gave a great sermon, but he's walking down. He sees this man that is bloody and bruised, naked on the side of the road. And what he actually does is he merges into oncoming traffic just to avoid it. There's only two options in this story of how to respond. There's only two. This is the priest actually avoids him. And then he goes on to say, following after him. So likewise, a Levite, when came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So the associate pastor, basically. He comes walking down the road. He's probably singing like the latest Chris Tomlin song. Sees this man, bloody and bruised, half dead on the side of the road, and like his leader, does the same exact thing. Actually, switches lanes, passes on by. The first option when you come into a situation like this, the first option is to say, it's just not my problem. Not my problem. And then Jesus goes on to say this. He goes on to say in verse 33, but a Samaritan, now he actually used the word Samaritan. That's like, that doesn't fly very well in this particular culture, especially to a scribe. He actually uses the word Samaritan. You see, the Samaritans were the outcast of society. Why were they outcast of society? Well, when King Nebuchadnezzar came in and, and brought captive and took all of God's people out of the promised land, took them into exile, he, they left a remnant of God's people behind. They were too poor. They were too weak to make the journey of exile. And so they left them behind. This remnant of God's people began to intermarry with the Gentiles. And over a amount of time that basically they begin to, yes, they had some Jewish worship. They had some Gentile worship, but they were, they were kind of, um, uh, you know, they, they lost their identity. They were the, the traitors, uh, according to God's, uh, the Israelites, they were traitors to, to God. They were traitors of their lineage, traitors, traitors of who they were. Because they were kind of mixed into another culture, mixed into another bloodline, the Gentiles. In fact, it was so bad that you, as a Jewish person, you wouldn't even walk through Samaria. You didn't even want to have a conversation with them. It's like a, it's like a you know, someone, a, a UT Longhorn uh, alumni would never pass through College Station, right? Like, no, I'm going to go around. I'm going to go around. And so this is what it's like. And he says, but a Samaritan was on his journey as he journeyed uh, as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him he had compassion he had pity he had pity now compassion and pity is an emotion that you feel in the gut and what we find throughout history is that when you have compassion or great empathy you don't necessarily do you don't necessarily logically think things through you just move you just engage with whatever the situation is there's not logic, it's just action. So he has compassion on him. And he goes on to say, so he went to him and he bound up his wounds. He, he did some basic first aid. He poured on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, so the next day, 
That means he, he stayed by his side to make sure he's going to be okay all night long. He could have gone home, but no, 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 no. He, he stayed by his side, make sure he's going to kind of rebound from this thing. And then it says the next day, he took out two denarii, two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So he gives him two silver coins, which would have been enough to basically cover all of his lodging, all of his meals, all of his health care for basically seven days. He tells the innkeeper, do what you have to do. And if there's a balance when I come back in seven days, I'll pay for it. I'll pay the debt. And then Jesus goes on. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, then go and do likewise. So the other option of how we respond to loving our neighbor is to one say, it's not my problem. And the second way is to say, if this was me or mine laying on the side of the road, what would I want someone to do? If that was my son or my daughter or my wife or my husband almost dead on the side of the road, what would I want someone to do? What would I want them to do? Those are the only two options. Say, it's not my problem. Or if that was me or mine, how would I want someone to take care of them, to love them? Now you say, Denny, I... Man, I, if I saw somebody naked, half bruised, almost dead on the side of the road, of course I'm going to stop and help. I mean, if the traffic's not so bad and it's not raining, of course I'm going to stop and help. Like we all would do that. We would all do that. Of course we would. But it's not just in that moment. Because what are you going to do the rest the, the other 77, 78 years of your life besides that 30 minutes that you were interrupted? Jesus is saying, love your neighbor. And sometimes we justify ourselves by saying, I love all people. I love my neighbor. I love everybody. And this is what I've come to find to be true about my life. Is that when everyone is my neighbor then no one is really my neighbor. Meaning if I'm not taking responsibility for the spiritual care of someone else, then I'm really not doing it for anybody. See, Jesus said, love your neighbor. Maturity is loving God, loving my neighbor as me, that is, that, that's where maturity becomes mission, is when we just begin to love our neighbor. All right, pop quiz. On your chair when you walked in, you got this card. So everybody take it in your hands. Come on. It's, it's going to be the most fun part of the whole morning. It says, my neighborhood has little houses on there. We already gave you one answer. My house. That's you. You can put your name in there if you want. But I wonder, 
If this represents your neighborhood, these are the people that live across the street from you. These are the people who live right next to you. Maybe you share a fence with these folks. Can we write in the names of the most basic command we are given to love our neighbor? So I'm going to give you about 60 seconds. And you're going to go ahead and say, can I fill in my neighborhood grid? So uh, let's have some music to kind of lighten it up. Because people are getting really depressed right now saying, I, oh gosh. All right, 60 seconds, go. I hear the chatter. What, what was their name again? We brought them, remember we were on that meal calendar once? College students, you say, well, I don't really have a neighborhood. I live in an apartment complex. You're, you're smart enough to figure it out. You know, make some boxes. Okay. You can continue that exercise when you get home. I was really convicted by this idea several years ago. Uh, we had planted a church at the University of Texas, Hill Country Bible Church, the University of Texas. And my wife and I, we lived in um, kind of downtown area in the campus area. We had a little house and all around us were college students. And uh, as college students do, every Friday and Saturday night, they partied. And one house in particular, right across the street, it seemed like Every Friday night and every Saturday night, they would have the biggest parties you could ever imagine. And they would actually bring like live bands into their living room and play the most God-awful music you have ever heard. It was loud. Our, our, our house would shake, it's particularly on Saturday nights because I have to preach on Sunday morning. They would go till three or four o'clock in the morning and I wouldn't be able to get any sleep. I just, I couldn't stand these people, these kids. I'm like, God, why? why? Why'd you put me here? And my wife would say, Bridget would say, hey, why don't you just call the police and they'll come. I was like, Bridget, we live in a college town. They're not coming, you know, because of a little party. So, uh, so this would go, this went on for a couple months. And then one night, it was a Friday night, they had one of these big parties. I mean, it was loud. There were people all over, even in our front yard, you know, all over the streets. And it finally kind of tapered off at about 4 a.m. in that next morning. I, I woke up after about three hours of sleep, thank you, and, um, and was just very upset. And then I re remembered, Jesus said, love your neighbor. So uh, my son got up. Trip, little trip. He was about four or five years old at that time. And I said, Trip, come on. We went down to Starbucks. I got one of those big giant jugs of coffee. You know those to-go jugs that you can get? They're just giant. I said, give me one of those. We went to the donut shop. Bought three dozens of donuts, three dozen donuts. I waited till about 10 o'clock because I wanted to be respectful that they had a long night. <laughs> Walked up to the door, knocked on the door. I could hear a bunch of noise. Someone finally, this young lady finally kind of makes her way to the door and she opens it up. Oh, hello. I said, hey, good morning. 
Oh, you're the neighbor. We are so sorry about last night. It's like, it's, it's okay, it's okay. It's like, uh, you know, my son and I were just thinking. We know you guys had a long night. You probably need some coffee. And we brought some donuts. You know, my son's holding, like, these donuts up. I could see inside. There's dead people, it looked like, all, all around the living room, which is all passed out. And this young lady looks at me, and she's like, are you serious? I said, I'm serious. She's like, thank you so much. So she took it. Over the next couple weeks, my son and I, we'd play in the front yard. We'd throw some baseball, stuff like that. They started coming over to the front yard, hanging out with us. About five, six weeks later, they're in a small group in my living room. Six months later, they're small group leaders on campus. Now, Friday and Saturday night were still loud. <laughs> but their lives were transformed with the gospel. And all it took was me to walk across the street and get to know their name. Houston becoming a city of God seems like, how is that ever going to happen? It happens because the mission field is right out our door. And it starts right here. This is going to be an awkward conversation for some of you who've lived in the same neighborhood for 15 years and you don't know the names of your neighbor. That's awkward. But I challenge you to do it. Just go and have that conversation. Hey, you know, realize we share a fence and your dog's always tearing up the bottom of the fence. I'm not worried about that. But <laughs> love for you to come over for a barbecue. We want to get to know who you are, what you dream about, how many kids you have, what your kids are up to. And then in those moments, we get an opportunity to share what I call our grace story because all of us have a story of grace. See, we will never achieve Houston becoming a city of God if I can't walk out my front door to the mission field that's right next to me. It's about taking personal responsibility to those who live around me. It's the idea that someday when Jesus comes back, and when he comes back, that we can offer up my neighbor my neighborhood, our community, our city, and say, God, this is our offering to you, Jesus. It's the souls of people. It's our neighbors. Because we lived on mission with you. Don't overcomplicate it. There's not a program we're going to put in place to help you get on mission. You know, when I was growing up, it was like evangelism explosion. You guys remember that? Right? There would be certain people that would gather together and they would go and they would do, they, they, you know, they would go door to door. No. Just love your neighbor. Just love your neighbor. Ask the question, if my son or my daughter was living far from God, what would I want someone to do? You would hope that somewhere in their neighborhood in their apartment complex or in their workplace was someone who was willing to say, I'm going to love my neighbor. 
and share the hope of Jesus because it's the most loving thing we could ever do. Our mission field is right out our door. We just got to step into it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. And thank you that, uh, God, that you were the missionary God. You sent yourself through your son, Jesus Christ, to redeem a broken world. You stepped into humanity to reconcile us to you. And we praise you for that. And we are thankful for that hearts of gratitude. As we respond this morning in an act of worship, as we take communion together as a family, a family of believers, that we do so in remembrance of your accomplished works, Jesus, on the cross. We do so in remembrance of that. 